the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is our time. Today we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His latest book is titled Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. Not just surviving, but thriving. We'll talk with him about that later this hour. And then in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Melissa Henson, Program Director with the Parents Television Council, on Universal Pictures' decision that they're going to release the movie The Hunt. They had withdrawn the movie last year because it was very controversial. We'll tell you, uh, remind you of what that uh, movie is about and speculate, I suppose, just a bit as to why they chose to release it now, which seems like uh, the least appropriate time to do so. Anyway, Melissa Henson will join us in the five o'clock hour. Taking a look at, oh, before I do that, let me just acknowledge James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program. Taking a look at some of the day's headlines, newly revealed anti-Trump views of the foreperson of the jury that convicted former Trump advisor Roger Stone, and new revelations about the political ties of other jurors have raised questions about how the case was handled and whether Stone's lawyers could seek a new trial. It's gone from whether or not the sentencing was uh, excessive to whether or not there should be a mistrial. Former Memphis City School Board uh, President um, Tamika Hart revealed on Wednesday that she was the foreperson of the jury that convicted Stone on obstruction charges last year. And soon afterward, her history of Democratic activism and a string of her anti-Trump left-wing social media posts came to light. She was apparently posting during the trial. Uh, Hart confirmed to CNN and other media organizations that she had written a Facebook post supporting the Justice Department prosecutors in the Stone case, who abruptly stepped down from their posts Tuesday, saying she can't keep quiet any longer. Well, the prosecutors apparently objected after senior Department of Justice officials overrode their recommendation to Jackson that Stone face up to nine years in prison. In addition, it was revealed that U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson had denied a defense request to strike a potential juror who who was Obama-era press official with admitted anti-Trump views and whose husband worked at the same Justice Department, a division that handled the probe leading to Stone's arrest. All these revelations released, or rather raised, the prospect that Stone's team could again seek a new trial, especially if Hart provided inaccurate responses under oath on her pretrial questionnaires concerning social media activity. Meanwhile, lawmakers, including Senators Elizabeth Warren and Richard Blumenthal, uh, called on Attorney General William Barr to step down over the uh, handling of the Stone case. The House Judiciary Committee announced Wednesday it will question Barr during a March 31st hearing. Senator Bernie Sanders on Wednesday called James Carville a political hack after the former President Clinton advisor said it would be the end of our of the days of Democrats if Sanders were to become the nominee. Sanders, of course, not a Democrat, but an independent. Look, James, in all due respect, Uh, is a political hack who said very terrible things when he was working for Clinton against Barack Obama. Sanders uh, told CNN's Anderson Cooper, we are taking on the establishment. This is no secret to anybody. And again, that was a quote uh, from Bernie Sanders. 
On MSNBC's Morning Joe Monday, Carville claimed that Sanders doesn't have a broad enough appeal to be able to beat Trump. Sanders responded by saying he is taking on President Trump, the Republican establishment, as well as the Democratic establishment, because his coalition of supporters wants real change. And the number of new coronavirus cases in China surged Thursday after 14,840 people were diagnosed with the disease that has already claimed 1,300 lives worldwide. The jump in cases comes after reports out of the country indicated that the virus may have leveled off. The latest increase was attributed to the country's new approach to counting patients. The Los Angeles Times reported that about 90 percent of the new cases were clinically diagnosed. Doctors in the country previously relied on a nucleic tests for the viral disease known as COVID-19. That's apparently the official new name. Well, Iowa's Democratic Party chair has resigned after the caucus fiasco, and House Republicans are boycotting an intel hearing accusing Adam Schiff of ignoring the FISA abuse reports, and the Department of Education has launched an investigation into foreign gifts reporting at Harvard and Yale universities. The Pentagon is set to um, back a Huawei restriction. We'll tell you a little more about that. And thousands of fetal remains found in an Illinois abortionist's garage, who is now deceased himself, have been buried in Indiana. And high school students have filed suit to block transgender athletes in Connecticut. Bernie Sanders assures the public that his uh, re-education camps will be tuition-free. Okay, that's a bit of humor that he didn't say that. On this day in history, 2016, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia, now uh, 79, not now, is found dead at a private residence in the Big Bend area of West Texas. On this day in history, 1633, Galileo arrives in Rome for trial before the Inquisition, accused of defending the Capricorn theory that the Earth revolves around the sun instead of the other way around. And on this day in history, 1861, Abraham Lincoln is officially declared winner of the 1860 presidential election as electors cast their ballots. 1943, during World War II, the U.S. Marine Corps Women's Reserve is officially established. And finally, on this day in history, 1974, Nobel Prize winning Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn is expelled from the Soviet Union. Well, the number of coronavirus cases in China significantly increased as of today when 14,840 new cases of the disease were reported. The country now has more than 50,000 confirmed cases and 1,300 people have died worldwide. The jump in cases comes after reports out of the country indicated that the virus may have leveled off. The nucleic tests that they had been relying on, according to reports, were criticized over their accuracy. The public has widely criticized local officials for their handling of the outbreak, and Beijing has been accused of withholding key statistics in the the virus early days. Uh, The Times reported that under the new guidelines, patients undergo a CT scan of their lungs and are observed by doctors to see if they're symptomatic. China has locked down an unprecedented 60 million people in an effort to curb the spread of the virus, which has hit hardest in the city of Wuhan and surrounding towns in the Hubei province. Chinese President Xi Jinping, he promised tax cuts and other aid to industry as the ruling Communist Party is trying to limit the mounting damage to the economy. And the country is struggling to restart its economy after the annual Lunar New Year holiday was extended to try to keep people home and contain the virus. Traffic remained light in Beijing and many people who are still um, working are doing so from home. Meanwhile, the coronavirus has infected some 60,000 people across 26 countries after first being discovered in China. 
um, it, uh, is um, a problem because uh, North Korea, which shares a border with the country, where more than 59,000 of those cases and over 1,300 deaths have been reported, claims it does not have a single illness. Unverified reports about a quarantined person allegedly uh, being executed by the country after visiting a public bath have emerged, as well as a potential first confirmed case. But the government remains steadfast in denying that the virus has reached its borders at all, which many experts have cast doubt on. There is no way that North Korea is not being impacted by the coronavirus. They are clearly lying as they don't want to show any weakness or that there is any threat to the regime. That's a quote from the director of Korean studies at the Center for National Interest. Last week, health ministry officials uh, told state media that there are no cases of virus, which has been named COVID-19 by the World Health Organization in the country, but that they would be prepared in the event that the outbreak spread. Clearly lying. That's how they're being described uh, by others. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress, author of Courageous 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. Well, Sudan's Justice Ministry today said that a settlement was reached for the families of U.S. Navy sailors killed and injured in the 2000 bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen. The agreement was, cert- was reached rather last week. The country is made, uh, making an effort to uh, be taken off the U.S. terrorism list. The al-Qaeda attack killed 17 sailors and wounded 39 others. It was the deadliest attack against a Navy vessel since 1987. Sudan was accused of providing the terror group with support. Authorities there, uh, their transitional government, have been desperate to lift its designation as a state sponsor of terror. Uh, the country has uh, had since 1993 with the hope of this settlement um, taking them off the list. No details of the settlement uh, was uh, Uh, added beside their statement. But leaders in uh, Sudan who are new to the country said they aren't responsible for the attack and negotiated to the uh, settlement to get rid of old claims inherited by the previous regime of former President Omar al-Bashir. There was no immediate comment from Washington. Well, Sudan's information minister and interim government spokesman uh, told the Associated Press that Justice Minister uh, had traveled last week to Washington to sign the deal that included compa- compensations rather for both the wounded and those killed. He said the figures could not be disclosed because the government is still in the middle of negotiations to reach a similar settlement with families of victims of the 1998 bombings of U.S. embassies in Kenya and, Tanz- and Tanzania. Our lawyers uh, advised us not to disclose the figures because that might uh, affect our ongoing negotiations. But uh, again, once uh, once again, I should say the headline, Sudan has reached settlements with the families of the USS Cole victims with other negotiations moving forward for other offenses that had been charged to the government leadership at that time. Well, eight Senate Republicans broke with President Donald Trump today, joining all the chamber's Democrats to support legislation that would restrict the president's ability to wage war in Iran. The 55-44-45 vote marked a rare bipartisan effort to curb the president's power and underscored lawmakers' concerns that U.S. tensions with Iran could escalate into a full-fledged war. Democrats said Congress had to act to rein in an unpredictable president, arguing Trump brought the United States to the brink of war with Iran when he green-lighted a deadly strike targeting Tehran's most powerful military leader, General Qassem Soleimani. That point, however, has been uh, heavily debated by those in the Pentagon and the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
during the um, debate on Thursday, Senate Minority Leader Charles Schumer said, I fear that the president's erratic decision making, his lack of strategy, his inability to control his impulse may bumble us into war, even if he doesn't intend it. Well, Schumer said on Thursday of the vote that it was a clear shot across the bow to Trump that Congress will not support another endless war in the Middle East. Senator Todd Young, an ex-Marine and conservative Indiana Republican, praised the president's decision to target Soleimani, but said lawmakers have no obligation to debate the use of U.S. military for, uh, force, or rather have an obligation. For nearly two decades, Congress has been AWOL on certain matters of national security and attempted to pass the buck to our commander-in-chief when things go wrong, Young said. It's time for us to do our job. Now, I'm not sure what their job would be in the case of um, the situation in Iran it was not a, a declaration of war, but if it were to have escalated, my understanding is they would step in to make decisions about how to respond. Most of the Senate's 53 Republicans voted against the measure, which would direct the president to terminate the use of U.S. military force engaged in hostilities against Iran unless explicitly authorized by Congress. Nancy Pelosi, the speaker, said Thursday that she would bring this the uh, Senate measure up to the House vote uh, this month, even if it uh, passes the House. Trump is almost certain to veto it. There's little chance that proponents of the measure could get a two-thirds House and Senate supermajority needed to override that veto. At the same time that vote was taking place, U.S. officials confirmed that a U.S. Navy warship intercepted Iranian-made weapons from a vessel in the Arabian Sea earlier this week. Uh, Crew members of the USS Normandy seized a huge cache of weapons from a uh, a small vessel with um, sails on Sunday while conducting maritime security operations in the U.S. central area of operations. The weapons and weapon components were intended for the Iranian-backed Houthi rebels in Yemen. The information was made available to the public today at the time the hearing was taking place. The uh, event itself took place days ago. Among the weapons seized were 150 anti-tank guided missiles, which are Iranian-manufactured copies of the Russian Cornet ATGMs. Other weapons were also Iranian-designed and manufactured, including three surface-to-air missiles, thermal imaging weapon scopes, components for unmanned aerial and surface vessels, as well as other munitions and advanced weapons parts. Many of those weapons were identical to those seized by the USS Forrest Sherman in the Arabian Sea in November. Those weapons were also determined to be of Iranian origin and assessed to be uh, destined for the Houthis and Yemen, a violation of the U.N. Security Council resolution that prohibits direct or indirect supply, sale or transfer of weapons to the Houthis. The weapons seized on Sunday are now in U.S. custody, awaiting final disposition. The assessment of the material will be an interagency and international effort. International partner nations and organizations have also been invited to inspect the cash. The operation is ongoing and further information Uh, is going to be made available at some point quite soon. Well, former um, Memphis City School Board President Tamika Hart revealed Wednesday that she was the foreperson of the jury that convicted former Trump advisor Roger Stone on obstruction charges last year. And soon afterward, her history of Democratic activism and a string of her anti-Trump left-wing social media posts came to light as well. Hart even posted specifically about the Stone case before she was selected to sit on the jury as she retweeted an argument mocking those who considered Stone dramatic arrest as a, in a pre-dawn raid by a federal tactical team to be 
excessive force. She also suggested President Trump and his supporters are racist and praised the investigation conducted by special counsel Robert Mueller, which ultimately led to Stone's prosecution. Meanwhile, it emerged that U.S. District Judge Amy Berman Jackson had denied a defense request to strike a potential juror who was an Obama-era press official with admitted anti-Trump views as well. Well, the revelations came as the president has called the handling of Stone's prosecution ridiculous and a demonstrably unfair insult to our country. They raised the prospect that Stone's team could again seek a new trial, especially if Hart provided inaccurate responses under oath on her pretrial questionnaires concerning social media activity. Well, the drama began when Hart confirmed to CNN and other media organizations Wednesday, Wednesday rather, that she had written a Facebook post supporting the Justice Department prosecutors in Stone's case, who abruptly stepped down from their post on Tuesday. Uh, saying she can't keep quiet any longer. Well, the prosecutors apparently objected after senior Department of Justice officials overrode their recommendation to Jackson that Stone face up to nine years in prison. Now, of course, recommendations are one thing. The judge will ultimately determine how much time he will spend in prison, although those recommendations do weigh in that decision-making process on the part of the judge. She said, I want to stand up for Aaron Zelensky, Adam Jed, Michael Mirando. She mentioned the other names, the prosecutors on Roger Stone's trial. Uh, she wrote in a post, it pains me to see the Department of Justice now interfere with the hard work of the prosecutors. They acted with the utmost intelligence, integrity and respect for our system of justice. She added as four person of the jury. I made sure we went through every element of every charge uh, matching the evidence presented in the case that led us to return a conviction of guilty on all seven counts. Independent journalist Mike Cernovich, uh, not CNN, uh, then first reported that a slew of Hart's other publicly available Twitter and Facebook posts readily suggested a strong political bias. Some of her posts were written as Stone's trial was in progress. Hart, who unsuccessfully ran for Congress as a Democrat in 2012, quoted someone in an August 2017 tweet referring to Trump as a member of the KKK, and it went on from there. Well, the question now has shifted from whether or not the um, sentence uh, recommendations were excessive to whether or not a a retrial uh, may be called for. Now, whether or not that's resonating with the judge uh, remains to be seen, but some are suggesting these new revelations cannot be ignored by the judge in moving forward in this case, and we'll just have to wait to see how she interprets them Uh, Moving forward. Meanwhile, Attorney General Bill Barr told ABC News on Thursday that President Trump's tweets make it impossible for me to do my job. In an unusual swipe at the president, although he emphasized that the president has never asked him to do anything in a criminal case. I think it's time to stop the tweeting about Department of Justice criminal cases, he said. I'm not going to be bullied or influenced by anybody, whether it's Congress, a newspaper editorial board or the president, end quote. He continued, I'm going to do what I think is right. And, you know, I cannot do my job here at the department with a constant background commentary that undercuts me. Well, Barr's unexpected remarks came days after the president, in a late-night tweet, criticized Justice Department prosecutors for recommending a nine-year prison sentence for his former advisor, Roger Stone. Hours following that tweet, senior Department of Justice officials amended their sentencing recommendations downward, although top DOJ Brass said their decision was independent of Trump's wishes. Some Democrats have said Trump could face another impeachment over the episode, which seemingly undercut the traditional separation of political considerations from the department's prosecutorial decisions. 
Well, conservative commentators have split over the issue, with some suggesting that career uh, DOJ bureaucrats are properly supervised by elected politicians and others praising Barr for condemning Trump's involvement. The Department of Justice said the in an amended filing that while it was technically possible to argue that Stone deserved the severe federal sentencing enhancement for threatening a f- uh, physical harm to a witness, such a move would violate the spirit of federal guidelines. So, uh, again, the severity of the sentencing is what has been called into question, uh, but no one is questioning whether or not he should. I suppose someone does, but few are questioning whether or not he should, in fact, spend some time in jail. We'll continue to follow the story as it develops. 30 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Dr. Robert Jeffress, his latest book, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, in an increasingly secular culture, Christians feel pressured to waver on their deeply held beliefs. Well, in the uh, new book, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World, best-selling author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress, he provides Christians with 10 strategies to courageously live out their faith in today's hostile anti-Christian environment. He says it's easy to get stuck in survival mode. And he writes, but the life that God calls us to is much more. In his book, you'll find practical tips on how to have courageous faith in the culture that is opposed to God and his truth, as well as the biblical answers encouragement, and hope you'll need to thrive in your own personal struggles. He applies 10 survivalist strategies to the Christian faith that you will find very helpful. Well, Dr. Robert Jeffress is senior pastor of the 14,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas, and a Fox News contributor. His daily radio program, Pathway to Victory, is heard on more than 1,000 stations nationwide, and his daily television program seen on thousands of cable systems and stations in the U.S. and in nearly 200 countries around the world. Known for his bold biblical stands on cultural issues, he joins us today to talk about his latest salvo, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. Dr. Jeffress, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, great to be back with you, Georgine. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about some of the challenges that we face as Christians today. I mean, it's not difficult to identify a few of them, but let's just begin there. What are some of the things that challenge us that are unique to our time Uh, that might uh, tempt us to shrink back. You know, C.S. Lewis had a great quote. He described this world as enemy-occupied territory. And that's really true, Georgine. I mean, when you think about it, as a Christian living in this culture, we've got incoming from every direction. I mean, we have attacks coming from without. I mean, a, a, a culture that's increasingly hostile toward the things of God. We have attacks from within us. We have at least the residue of an old sin nature that pulls us away from God. And if those things weren't enough, we have attacks from below. We have a very real adversary, Satan, who does everything he can to destroy what's important to us in life. And uh, I think in spite of all of these attacks, God has given us everything we need, not just to survive, but thrive in this world. And what I've done in this book, Georgine, is I've taken uh, the 10 survival tactics that survivalists say you need to use if you're in a plane crash or an avalanche or an earthquake. 
things like don't panic, uh, gain situational awareness, remember your training, and I've applied them to the Christian life so that we can do more than just survive. We can thrive amidst the challenges that bombard us every day. Let's talk about what it means to thrive. I think many of us, we can, okay, we have a vision of surviving. We can just last until, you know, our time is up. But describe for us what thriving looks like uh, when you're serious about your faith and you are applying what Scripture has to say about the challenges that we face, and Jesus promised we would face. You know, my old professor, Howard Hendricks, used to say that too many Christians look like the cover photo for the Book of Lamentations. I mean, they just go around, <laughs> you know, sour face or defeatist, and oh, I hope I can just crawl across the finish line one day and make it toward heaven. That's not how God wants us to live. He wants us to do more than endure. He wants us to enjoy this life that he's given us. And, you know, I think about the example of Jesus. Hebrews 12 says, we keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He didn't crawl to the cross. He wasn't defeated. He marched triumphantly to the cross because of the joy that was beyond the cross. And that's how I think God wants us to live, uh, Georgine, in this world. Not happy. That's a superficial emotion. That's not possible all the time. But joy is is that quiet confidence that God is in control of the world at large and of our world in particular. Now, there are some among us in this challenging time who have decided that thriving simply means keep your head down, uh, don't talk about your faith, don't engage in any um, controversy, don't express your Christian life at all, and and just wait. Is that an acceptable position to take, and is that a a proper uh, posture to be in to describe as thriving as a believer, as a follower of Christ? No, it's not. And frankly, it's the reason our culture is in the shape that it's in right now. When I look at what's happening in America, uh, it's not, I don't blame non-Christians for that. I mean, why blame non-Christians for acting like non-Christians? It's the church that has lost its saltiness, its distinctiveness. Christians who have not lived out their faith, that are the blame for the reason we're in the shape we're in right now. And I really think it's time for Christians to stand up and to speak out. And I'm hoping that this book, Courageous will help us do that. You know, Georgine, I have this particular persuasion. I mean, I think what we're experiencing as a country right now is just a respite, a pause. Yes, we're in a semi-faith-friendly environment, but I believe when the left regains control of this country, and they will regain control of this country, there's going to be an onslaught against Christians and the Church of Jesus Christ like we never imagined. It's not going to be incremental. It's going to be immediate and intense. And I wrote this book, Courageous, to help prepare Christians for what I believe is going to be a real time of persecution in this country, and for parents to use these principles to train their children and grandchildren about how to stand up and be courageous. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that there's a challenge coming. In fact, Jesus warned his followers that they would face tremendous uh, opposition. What encouragement does he share in Scripture as we anticipate things heating up in the near future? Well, John sixteen thirty three, Jesus was very honest with his followers. He said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus never painted a picture of Christians being exempt from problems. In fact, he said being a Christian guarantees problems. In this world, you will have tribulation. But then he added, 
take courage, for I have overcome the world. And I think, you know, that's the balance. We need to be realistic about the challenges we face, but we also need to remember the end of the story, that in the end we win. I'm preaching through Revelation right now, verse by verse, and there's some awful things that are going to happen. The short-term forecast is dark and stormy, but the long-term forecast is bright and sunny. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about a few of the 10 survivalist strategies that you share. You mentioned one of them a moment ago, and the first is not to panic. I think that's our first instinct, to panic. Um, how can believers apply this strategy when things start to uh, to heat up or when they start to turn a, in a direction that will clearly challenge uh, their faith? You know, when faced with a challenging situation like an earthquake or avalanche, 80% of people freeze. They just don't know what to do. And that's a natural reaction when bad things happen to us, is to freeze. But, you know, Joshua had his own challenging situation. He was told he was going to fill the sandals of Moses, the great leader. He panicked. And remember God's word to him in Joshua 1, Do not fear, do not be dismayed, for I am with you wherever you go take courage. And you know, Georgina, a young mother was reading this chapter just a couple of weeks ago, and while she was reading the chapter, she got the news that she had cancer and only three or four months to live. And she wrote me and she said, you know, my first inclination was to panic. What would happen to my children, my husband? But then I remembered God's promise, I am with you wherever you go, take courage. Absolutely. Another of the strategies that you uh, write about these survivalist strategies is to take inventory. What should we consider in taking inventory and how should believers uh, go about this to help them thrive in uh, difficult times? You know, I I start each chapter of Courageous with a real-life survival yes. story that illustrates that principle. And in this one, I tell the well-known story of Apollo 13. Ron Howard made the great movie about it. And you know, those astronauts were on board. They didn't have the right air filter. All they could use was what they had. So they took their available inventory, a bungee cord, a couple of p- plastic bags, and a couple of old socks, and built what they needed. Well, you know, when we take inventory of what God has given us to make it through this life, He's given us much more than a bungee cord and some old socks. He's given us two things, the armor of God. And I talk about that from Ephesians 6. We know it well, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. But there's another resource that Christians don't think about that often, and that is the people of God. They're a great resource. You know, God never meant for us to face these challenges in life by ourselves. Uh, There's strength in numbers, and that's why, Georgine, it's so essential that every Christian bind themselves to a local body of Christians and a church who will stand with them when those challenges come. Mm. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do uh, do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Dr. Robert Jeffress. His book is titled Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 50 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Robert Jeffress, uh, author of his latest book, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. One of the things I really appreciate about each chapter is it opens with a true story that illustrates one of the 10 survival tri- tips that uh, are critical to make it out of a life-threatening situation alive. And it helps us to... Uh, uh, 
to relate that situation to the one we may find ourselves in as we attempt to honor Christ uh, in some very challenging times uh, ahead. Now, oftentimes, Dr. Jeffress, Christians feel victimized by a yeah. situation or a person, but you encourage them to have a victor's mindset. First of all, what do you mean by that, and how do we get from victim to victor? Well, you know, uh, this isn't positive thinking mumbo-jumbo. The Bible says, as a person thinks in his heart, so is he. And, uh, you know, it's easy to fall into victim mentality when we face problems, adverse people, or circumstances. But we really need to have that victorious mindset. And I think a good example of that in the Bible is Joseph. I mean, think about all of the things that he went through, sold into slavery by his brothers, falsely accused of rape by his boss's wife, uh, unfairly sent to prison, forgotten by his friends in prison. I mean, Georgine, he could have been in therapy the rest of his life if he had wanted to. Instead, he chose to have a victor's mindset. And remember that great climactic scene when he was reunited with his brothers? He had the chance to exact revenge from them, but instead he said, and as for you, you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. And I think that's the essence of being a victor, to realize that God is bigger than the adverse people or the adverse circumstances we're in. That God is so big and powerful, he can take the worst things that happen to us and use them for our good and his glory. And uh, I think of Chuck Swindoll's words. He said, the older I get, the more I realize that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% how you respond to what happens to you. Yeah, yeah. Now, what scripture passages have you found especially helpful uh, when you feel uh, backed in a corner? I think for many of us, we need to be saturated in God's word. We need to be studying. We need to remember what God's word said in order that we recognize our status as victors and that we can find um, the kind of help that we need when we feel backed uh, against the wall. You know, the essence, Georgine, of courage, I believe, is obeying God regardless of the consequences. Obeying God when we can't see what the consequences are going to be, obeying Him when people are threatening us, obeying God. And to me, the scripture that helps me center my life and focus on that is 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. Paul said, therefore, we have as our ambition, whether absent or at home, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one of us may be rewarded for what we've done, whether it's good or worthless. And, uh, you know, Jesus said, don't fear people who can only destroy your body. I mean, that's the worst anybody can do to you is kill you. Instead, fear the one who is able to destroy the body and the soul. And I think when we live our life for that audience of one, it gives us the courage to obey God regardless of what's happening around us. Another of your chapters is titled, Trust Your Training. It's easy to imagine that in a survivalist situation. And again, you provide a story that helps us picture that uh, scenario. But when we're facing opposition or challenge in our Christian walk, what training should we be trusting in and what's necessary for us to be prepared and equipped for those challenges that will inevitably come? You know, the story I tell is Sully Sullenberger, who yes. miraculously landed that U.S. airplane on the Hudson River. And people said, how were you able to do that? He said, it was easy. I trusted my training. 
And I contrast that to the pilots of that Lion Air 737 a few years ago that was careening toward the ground, and the pilots spent their last few moments frantically searching the flight manual to discover what they were supposed to do. Listen, if you wait until that moment when the crisis comes to search the flight manual, you've waited too long. Everybody on that plane lost their life. And what I'm talking about trusting your training is trusting and putting God's word into your heart before the crisis comes. You know, Jesus did that in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. He didn't say to Satan, hold on just a moment while I, you know, unroll the scroll and see if there's something in Deuteronomy to help me. No, uh, he knew Satan wasn't going to wait. He had hidden God's word in his own heart that he would obey his heavenly father. If Jesus needed to do that, how much more do we need to do that? Mm. Another chapter that I think is really important is um, you encourage your readers not to celebrate their success too soon. Beware of celebrating the summit. Yeah. You know, mountain climbers will tell you that the most dangerous time of a mountain climbing expedition is not the ascent to the summit. It's the descent after they've reached the summit. It's then they tend to be fatigued. They tend to be careless. They tend to be overconfident. And that's when they're most prone to trip and to fall. Paul said the same thing. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I mean, the fact is, if we successfully overcome a challenge, I'll guarantee you there's another one waiting around the corner for you. And that's why we need to stay close to the Lord, not only during the times of crisis, but even the times that we're out of a crisis. You write that all of the tools and training that you provide in your book are useless if your readers don't have one thing. What's the one thing that we have to have in order to confront the, confront the challenge of our day well? And, and that one thing is courage. Being ready to obey God regardless of the circumstances. And Georgine, that's something that we need to teach our children and grandchildren. Because the fact is, they're growing up in a culture that is much more hostile to Christianity than the one you and I grew up in. And I'm hoping uh, parents will use this as a, as a training manual for their children to develop courage. My friend Oliver North wrote the endorsement on the back, and he said, I've trained Marines for years in these survival tactics. It never occurred to me to apply them to the Christian life, but it's a must-read manual for Christians. And so I hope Christians will use this not just for themselves, but for their children and grandchildren. Your final chapter is uh, titled, Do the Next Right Thing. Um, Sometimes we're not certain uh, what course we're likely to find ourselves on. What's the next right thing, and how do we determine uh, what to do when we're in the midst of a challenge and aren't entirely certain of the direction or the outcome? Here are two great diagnostic questions to help you know what the next right thing is. You know, what's one thing you know you're not doing that God would want you to start doing? And second question, what's one thing you're doing right now that you know God wants you to stop doing? If you can answer those questions, you know immediately the next right thing for you to do. Your book is titled Courageous. What can we expect if we purpose to be courageous in the face of the challenges that are coming, the challenges that we currently face as well as those that are coming? Um, Because I don't want our listeners to imagine that if we face them with courage, then we're not going to have much to face, but that there are going to be challenges that may be very serious in the days ahead. Well, that's right. 
there's no guarantee that you're going to be exempt from problems. But what you will have as a result of a, uh, applying the truths of courageous is God's approval upon your life. And is there anything any better than that? Paul said at the end of his life, I fought the good fight. I finished the course, and I have kept the faith. Uh, the way to live uh, courageously is to obey God and know you have his approval. And after that, nothing else matters. Well, Dr. Jeffers, thank you so much for the book. We appreciate your ministry, and uh, thank you for the time that you've taken to be with us here today. It's always good to be with you, Georgine. Thank Thank you. you. Again, Dr. Robert Jeffress, Courageous, 10 Strategies for Thriving in a Hostile World. And the book is published by Baker Books. By the way, you can hear Dr. Jeffress' program right here on KPDQ. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. During this hour, we'll talk with Melissa Henson. She's the program director with the Parents Television Council. We're going to talk about a decision made by Universal Pictures reversing its earlier decision not to release The Hunt. It's a political satire, I guess is what they're calling it, in which uh, some wealthy progressives uh, hunt down some um, conservative right-wingers uh, in an effort to kill them. Now, maybe it's it, it's treated in a way that's actually humorous, and it's I, you know I. Anyway, we'll talk with Melissa Hinson about um, about that puzzle. And by the way, they've uh, announced that they're going to release the movie in March. Taking a look at uh, some of the news before that conversation with. Uh, Melissa, later in the program, Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell, in an interview uh, yesterday, said that he wouldn't rule out a new impeachment effort against the president over his alleged interference in the criminal case of his former associate, Roger Stone. I mentioned before the uh, top of the hour uh, that, in fact, the uh, attorney general has expressed his frustration with the president's tweeting, making it very difficult to do his job. Uh, And maintaining the position, as has others in the Department of Justice, the president did not ask him or others to uh, intervene on behalf of his former associate uh, and that the decision was made before the president's tweet about Roger Stone and the sentencing recommendations that had been uh, offered by the prosecutors. But nonetheless, uh, we're hearing once again the possibility of impeachment. And there are also calls for the attorney general to step down. Well, federal prosecutors on Monday had recommended a sentence of between 87 and 108 months in prison for Stone's conviction on seven counts of obstruction, witness tampering, making false statements to Congress on charges that stemmed from the former special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Now, it's, uh, it is widely held that that is an, a very long sentence for the offenses that have been charged, but the way the president interjected himself into the ongoing process of, of challenging that has raised some serious questions. And a stunning reversal, um, uh, leadership at the Justice Department overruled the prosecutors on the case, scaling back the proposed sentence for Stone. And again, we're talking about recommendations, not the actual sentence. A judge will make that decision. Uh, immediately led the Democrats to accuse the president of interfering in the process by tweeting about his displeasure with the Department of Justice. The president denied it, and the case lately has been complicated further by questions over possible juror bias. We talked about that earlier in the program as well, so I won't repeat it. Well, during an interview with CNN on Wednesday, uh, Representative Swalwell was asked whether Democrats would look at uh, look to launch a new impeachment inquiry on the new controversy, and he said, I'm quoting, you know, we're not going to take our opinions off the table 
Um, we don't uh, wake up in the morning wanting to impeachment, uh, impeach him rather. He added, we want to work with him on prescription drugs, background checks, infrastructure, but we're not going to let him just torch this democracy, constitutional republic, before he thinks that he's been let off uh, once and we're not going to do something about it. Well, Swalwell's comments come as several Democrats on Capitol Hill have demanded investigations and even the resignation of the attorney general after the move to scale back the stone sentence. And again, we're talking about a recommendation, not the sentence itself. Uh, but the president interjecting himself via tweet has complicated a matter once again that uh, would not have garnered much attention at all if he had not in- interjected himself, even though apparently this was an, a tweet unrelated to the decisions made by the Department of Justice. And three Democratic members of the House Judiciary Committee were hit with ethics complaints on Wednesday connected to a slew of alleged violations related to campaign fundraising. Nonprofit watchdog group Americans for Public Trust filed complaints with the Office of Congressional Ethics against Representatives Madeline Dean, a Democrat from Pennsylvania, Pramila Jayapal, a Democrat from Washington, and Lucy Um, Nick Bath, a Democrat from Georgia, calling for investigation of possible violations of House rules and federal law. The organization, founded by former National Republican Congressional Committee Research Director Caitlin Sutherland, also filed complaints against Dean and McBath with the Federal Elections Commission. All three of these members have engaged in disturbing activities that appear to us to be violations of federal law and House rules. Uh, Adam Laxalt, who's the former Nevada attorney general and outside counsel for Americans for Public Trust, he went on to say this is especially alarming, giving all three sit on the prestigious House Judiciary Committee, which has direct oversight responsibilities over the Department of Justice and, by extension, the nation's law enforcement. We're calling on the Federal Election Commission and the Office of Congressional Ethics to immediately investigate these suspicious activities. Um, the complaints against the uh, the trio, Dean in particular, claim that after she suspended her campaign for lieutenant governor in Pennsylvania, she used campaign funds from that race to go toward the congressional campaign she launched soon after. The complaints allege that this violated federal law and by extension House rules because campaigns for federal office must only use funds that were subject to the FEC, the Federal Elections Commission. Uh, the complaints state that these expenditures continued after Dean was elected to Congress and totaled more than $17,000. Now, this is a bit uh, down in the weeds, uh, but the complaint against Jayapal describes uh, allegations that the Washington Democrat violated a House rule that prohibits members of Congress from soliciting campaign or political contributions that are linked with an official action taken by or taken uh, or to be taken by a House member. And the complaint also says that the federal law prohibits House members from requesting money or other things of value connected with performance of an official duty. Uh, It points to tweets from Jayapal related to the Medicare for All bill that she sponsored in which she referenced uh, or linked to a C-SPAN broadcast of a House hearing related to the bill while soliciting campaign contributions to keep the momentum going. Well, the complaints against McBath uh, are connected to money her campaign received from the advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety. She'd been employed by Every Town prior to launching her congressional campaign in March of 2018, and the complaint states that she remained employed there for roughly two more months. During that time, she appeared on television as both a candidate and a spokesperson for Every Town. Again, a bit in the weeds, but just another investigation as Washington seems to be consumed with either threatening investigations or engaging in them. 
Meanwhile, an association of New York sheriffs today expressed deep concern, that's their choice of words, about the state's new green light law that's called Unwise. This is the latest law enforcement group to come out against the controversial law ahead of a meeting between the governor, Andrew Cuomo, and President Trump at the White House, which took place earlier today. In a letter to the governor and other state politicians, the New York State Sheriff's Association expressed its opposition and deep concern about the recently passed law that grants driver's licenses to illegal immigrants and blocks State Department of Motor Vehicles agencies from sharing information with federal immigration authorities. Now, as you recall, there's already an aggressive move to challenge sanctuary states and cities across the country. And this is a reflection of uh, the kinds of challenges that are being issued. Well, the sheriffs say that it did not offer strong opposition to the licenses as it was a public policy issue rather than law enforcement issues, but added, however, the provision of law which effectively denies federal immigration officials access to State Department of Motor Vehicles records is a law enforcement issue and one about which we feel compelled to express our opposition and deep concern. The letter goes on to say that sheriffs have a history of cooperating with law enforcement agencies such as ICE and U.S. Customs and Border Protection. The meeting with the president lasted longer than some expected it might uh, with the uh, governor and uh, details of what happened during that meeting has not yet been made available. But we're continuing to follow that story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about what's happening with Concordia students They filed, at least one has filed a class action suit regarding closing of that campus. And there was a walkout earlier in the day as well. That and more when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk with Melissa Hinson. She's the program director for Parents Television Council. We'll talk about Universal Pictures' decision to release the very controversial film, The Hunt, where you have a wealthy group of individuals who are political opponents of the prey they have identified and are tracking um, that are less affluent and happen to be, I think, conservative. I think that's the way it's set up. Anyway, it's... um, not a particularly wholesome um, pro, uh, movie, and certainly not at a time when there is so much vitriol all across the country. Anyway, we'll talk with uh, Melissa about that when she joins us in our next segment. I mentioned earlier this week that after 115 years, Concordia University right here in Portland is closing its doors. It's going to um, do so following the end of the 2020 spring semester. And they're facing a potential class action lawsuit that was launched by a student who claims he was misled about the institution's financial struggles. In a statement that the private Lutheran institution with about 5,700 students explained that its board of regents voted after much prayer and consideration of all options to cease operations of the school in a resolution that was approved on the 7th of this month. Well, the board's vote follows years of mounting financial challenges and a challenging and changing educational landscape. The board said, well, the interim president, Tom Rice, uh, said the board concluded that it's impossible to pursue the school's mission, considering the current and projected enrollment and the finances of the school. The board has come to this difficult decision, recognizing that it is in the best interest of our students, our faculty, our staff and our partners. He pledged to share more information as it becomes available. Well, according to um, Oregon Live, the closure will result in over fifteen hundred layoffs That will occur in September. Well, Concordia says it's an active uh, discussion 
with accredited bodies to provide students with opportunities to continue their education at other higher education institutes. In fact, some had come from another now closed institution to Concordia. So this comes as a double surprise for them. Uh, Anyway, Concordia is also in talks about how to help faculty and staff transition to the next phase in their careers. Well, the university's 24-acre Northeast Portland campus is going to return the ownership to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, one of the campus's lenders. The institution will be looking to sell that property. Well, one Concordia student said that he plans to sue the school on grounds that it misled him and other students about its financial condition and left them without a way to graduate or transfer to another school. Whether or not they're left without a way to transfer to another school isn't altogether clear. That seems to be what... Concordia is going to try to help accommodate students so that they can. William Spaulding, who is a student, told Oregon Live that he hired an attorney on Monday to draft a class action lawsuit in state court accusing the school of unlawful business practices. Uh, He's going to be requesting a jury trial. He claims that he and other students would not have paid for the 2020 semester uh, had they been informed about the school's struggling finances. According to the College Board, the average annual tuition cost for the first-year student at Concordia is $29,480. That includes room and board and other expenses and an average cost of about 45360 Well, Concordia University misrepresented the qualities and characteristics of its education services and the value of its tuition credits, the complainant uh, says. Well, the lawsuit doesn't spe- uh, specify, rather, how much Spalding is seeking in monetary damages, but does request injunctive relief to require the university to disclose how much it profited from tuition in 2020. The suit can be amended later to reflect the value of the damages. Well, according to Spalding's lawsuit, the first time Concordia students were told about the financial struggles of the school was the same day the school announced it would close. Upon information and belief, the high-paying executives at Concordia University knew since 2019 that the university was in dire financial condition and that the university's closure in 2020 was looming, the lawsuit argues. Well, the suit further complains that the university advertised programs throughout um, late 2019 and early 2020 and even promised students that by 2024, the university would have a strong national reputation. Relying on Concordia University's advertisements and representations, the plaintiff paid Concordia University thousands of dollars for educational services and tuition credits in 2020, the lawsuit goes on to say. Well, Spalding is represented by Michael Fuller, an attorney. Fuller told the Portland Business Journal that he is also talking with three Concordia University students who attended Merrillhurst University when it shut in 2018, some of whom transferred to Concordia. In an interview with Business Journal, um, Rees, the current um, uh, president, said that the school had been considering an option to stay open before the vote of the Board of Regents last week. So it wasn't a foregone conclusion. A Concordia University spokesman told the Christian Post in an email that the university believes that the claims made by Spalding and his lawsuit are without merit. But they, of course, are not the ones who will ultimately decide. Right now, we are focused on supporting our faculty, staff and students in their transition. Concordia University's closure comes as many small private colleges are struggling with lower enrollments and struggling finances. In 2018, it was reported by Moody's Investor Service uh, that about a quarter of private colleges and universities in the U.S. spent more than they earned in 2017. Meanwhile, the medium revenue for such colleges, for such schools rather, was 2.4 percent, with a median expense growth of 3 percent. Um, the uh, Acting president uh, told KGW8 that Concordia University has had a negative cash flow for quite some time.
Sadly, no one knew that. Well, earlier today, students at Concordia University walked out. That was about 10 a.m. this morning and then staged a sit in at the president's office in protest of the university closing. The 115-year-old institution here in Portland announced on Monday, and students heard it then for the very first time. The student organizer of that uh, walkout and stand-in, Hannes Schalter, uh, said that our goal is to create a space at CU, uh, rather for CU students, to have a voice since CU administration has yet to give us that space. Uh, She said the Concordia University administration has failed their responsibility to support and protect their students, staff and faculty. Well, Stotler um, said organizers hope to protest, hope the protest will open a conversation between the university and the Board of Regents that will lead to better uh, severance packages for staff and faculty, an acknowledgement of their wrongdoing and a plan to ensure that this never happens again. Of course, they're dissolving, so... It won't happen again. Organizers are also asking that financial records be released showing how and why this happened and what CU administration had been uh, spending the money on these past several years. So that was their list of demands. We'll see what actually happens. Well, in, uh, in some good news, uh, Delta Airlines has reunited a toddler with her missing daddy doll after it became lost during a flight from Connecticut to Florida last week, the doll featured a picture of the 18-month-old's father in military uniform and played a record of his voice when she pushed a button, according to her mother. Uh, her mother, Ariel Britton, told uh, Facebook last Thursday, writing that her daughter carried that doll with her everywhere because her father was deployed. She said the doll became lost while they were traveling from Bradley International Air, uh, Airport to Hartsfield-Jackson Atlanta International Airport and on to Florida. Her story quickly spread on Facebook and on Twitter, uh, and they found the doll. By Friday afternoon, a Delta employee contacted the mother to say that the doll had been found on a plane in Atlanta. That same day, Delta tweeted a photo of the doll in a seat uh, on the plane uh, with the post, We found your doll, Kinley. He missed you, but don't worry, we're bringing him home. Daddy doll is uh, has been found, Britain wrote uh, in a follow-up Facebook post on Friday. Thank you, Delta employees uh, and everyone who shared my post in making this happen. He was found on the plane and is making his way back home to Kinley. We cannot thank you enough. So just in a happy story, the doll um, bearing her father's likeness, his full body in uniform, uh, will or has been returned to her. Also, Tim Tebow's favorite night of the year has finally arrived. Maybe it's now the second favorite night of the year. He got married earlier this year. But the outspoken Christian athlete and his wife, Demi Lee Nell Peters, uh, visited three international locations ahead of the Night to Shine events that are taking place on Friday in which more than 730, uh, 720 churches across the United States and in more than 30 countries, they're hosting more than 115,000 guests age 14 and up, all of them with special needs. We've decided to go out of our way to make the biggest, the most special night of the year for people with special needs because they're worth it and they're special, Tebow said, speaking on Fox News. Over 200,000 volunteers have prepared for the sixth annual celebration where they rolled out the red carpet literally and guests were met with cheering paparazzi. The girls got their makeup done, the boys, uh, their shoes shined. Then they joined together for a catered dinner with party favors and activities, including dancing and 
karaoke. The highlight of the night comes when each honored guest is crowned prom king or prom queen as everyone cheers. Many shared about the uh, big night online. Uh, one shared photos uh, of his daughter, Kinsey, in Tulsi, uh, in Tulsa, rather, saying she had been counting down the weeks and is ready for prom night. Burnside uh, wrote the father, nails done, hair fixed, evening gown on. My little girl has grown into a beautiful young lady. She will be enjoying this night. Another post, uh, posted a video of the red carpet entrance of um, the church where this event will take place tomorrow, Elevation Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Each church hosting has different ways of celebrating. Um, video balloons uh, being dropped from the ceiling, um, all kinds of things to make it a, a celebratory night. And these, again, are all young people, 14 and older, with special needs. And they're having their own prom where they're not self-conscious. They're not left out. They are celebrated for who they are. And it's, uh, it's pretty, a pretty amazing thing. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk with Melissa Henson, Program Director for the Parents Television Council. We'll talk about Universal Pictures Pictures announcement that they're going to release the film The Hunt in March. The question is, why? We'll tell you why it's controversial when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, for some unknown reason, Universal Pictures has decided they're going to release in March the movie The Hunt. It was pulled from release last year. Well, the Parents Television Council is questioning the decision to release this film that focuses on a group of rich elites hunting other humans for sport. It's sort of a political drama, and it's supposed to be satire. I'm wondering if this is the time for this kind of programming, or if there is ever a time for this kind of programming. Well, here to join us to talk about that is Melissa Henson. She's the program director for the Parents Television Council. Melissa, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I have to admit, I am confused by the decision made by Universal Pictures. I suppose they waited until the very volatile and contentious impeachment trial has ended. But now we're into a a national presidential contest, and they've decided that March is a good time to release The Hunt. Maybe we should begin by talking about the plot of The Hunt so people know why this is uh, so inappropriate. Well, from what we know of it, um, the the premise appears to be that uh, sort of this progressive elite uh, hunts for red state conservatives as if they were, you know, on a on a uh, a wild game safari kind of a situation. You know, they're 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 just hunting out and looking to kill red state conservatives. Is um, what. Uh, this is the way it's being talked about and being promoted in any case. And it's supposed to be, I know it's satire. This is supposed to be comical. Well, I I guess if you have a a warped sense of humor, (laughs) you might find it comical, but I think most of us would find it horrifying. You know, the idea that just because you differ with somebody politically, that makes them fair game as a target uh, I mean, I think, you know, our, our, our culture is divided enough already, and particularly when it comes to politics. And we're seeing plenty of real-life, real-world instances where people are acting violently toward people for no reason other than a difference of opinion on politics. I'm not sure that we need to be adding this kind of fuel to that fire. Tim Winter, who's the president of the Parents Television Council, said that we're at the center of one of the most divisive, vitriolic times in our nation's history since our Civil War took the lives of more than 600,000 Americans. 
And yet Hollywood, in its infinite wisdom, has chosen now to be the appropriate time to show political rivals being hunted down and killed solely because of their political beliefs. It doesn't really matter, and he makes this point as well, if it's conservatives hunting uh, progressives or the other way around. Uh, it's just not a, a subject that we should find entertaining or should be encouraged in an entertainment format. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, and especially when you consider that, you know, tomorrow is going to be the two-year anniversary of the Parkland school shooting. And a lot of the um, media coverage in the aftermath of that tragedy touched on the fascination that the perpetrator in that instance had with violent media. He played a lot of violent video games. We now know after more than 60, 70 years' worth of research on this subject that violent media begets real-life violence. Um, and this is a lesson that um, you know Hollywood apparently still has not learned. And it's also a familiar pattern with Hollywood that you know they, they, they will produce something that just shocks the conscience, and then there's this media furor in the immediate aftermath, and so they pull the product for a time only to sort of quietly try to release it on the market later on. Um, they're, they're not really interested in doing the right thing. They, they always end up putting these violent products out there anyhow. They just wait a little bit until the, the temperature cools down a little bit before they do it. Once again, uh, quoting Tim Winter, the president of Parents Television Council, he reminds us that this past Sunday, Hollywood celebrated its cultural impact on the nation and on the world. Uh, at its annual Oscars event. In fact, we were lectured by a few of them. Uh, if true, then Hollywood must be held to account for the impact of the hunt. Uh, again, it was sort of a self-congratulatory event that happens every year, which they pat themselves on the back on the the positive impact that they have on uh, the cultures of this country and uh, other cultures around the world. And yet they produce something like this. Uh, for what purpose, one wonders. Yeah. It's stunning, isn't it, that they are happy to take credit uh, for any pro-social causes that they feel that their products are, are promoting. You know, they're happy to, to get behind get-out-the-vote campaigns or climate activism or whatever their pet cause du jour is and, and believe that the products that they're producing in Hollywood are having a positive impact on these, these social causes that they believe strongly in. But then they want to deny any culpability at all when their products inspire um, horrendous uh, outcomes in, in the real world. Now, when they decided last year to pull the release of the film, and again, this is a practice that we're not unfamiliar with, was there a reason given at that time as to why it wasn't released initially as was in, intended? Yeah, I, I don't remember uh, if there was any kind of official statement at that time. I don't remember seeing one. I just remember that there was a lot of outcry and a lot of, um, I think, justifiable outrage that, that, uh, that they would even consider this premise. Um, so the fact that they're, they're coming out with it now is, is really kind of, um, uh, <laughs> it's kind of, uh, kind of sketchy, especially, you know, as we're in the middle of an election year, uh, we just came out of, as, as Tim said in his statement, a very divisive, uh, you know, impeachment process. Um, I think temperatures are as, as, as high as they've been in a long time Absolutely. to uh, the, the political divisiveness in this country. And, and to put this out now in the midst of all that, I think, is really irresponsible. Is there anything listeners can do to at least express their disappointment, their outrage, their frustration uh, to Universal Pictures that is uh, that produced and is releasing the movie? 
Yeah, well, we, we have generally not in the past called for boycotts. Um, they're not always the most effective thing. But in this case, I think certainly it is appropriate for you to um, reach out to Universal, let them know how you feel about this, uh, you know, express yourself in the letters sometimes. Uh, you know, if they get a substantial volume of letters, it may make a difference in this instance. Well, and it certainly may inform their decisions on future movies moving forward. One can only certainly. hope. Well, I so appreciate... Yeah, and, and also lo- local mo- movie theaters, too, I should add. Um, you know, hmm. go to your, the manager of uh, the local movie theaters and, and encourage them to not carry the movie. So I think it's important that we make our voices heard in this instance. Again, we're talking about the movie titled The Hunt. It's uh, going to be released, apparently, in March of this year by Universal Pictures. Um, I would encourage listeners, if you're interested in more information about the work of the Parents Television Council, they do a great job in keeping us informed about things that are happening or um, are about to happen. And you can uh, find them at parentstv.org, parentstv.org. There's also a blog. You can find out all kinds of information there. Melissa, I so appreciate your work and for uh, taking the time to bring us up to date on this latest release or soon to be released movie from Universal Pictures. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much again for having me on. You're certainly welcome. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, Melissa Hinson, Program Director of Parents Television Council on this uh, Universal Pictures decision to release uh, release the movie. Just in, entirely inappropriate. I, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised. This is uh, something that's fairly typical of Hollywood to try to uh, release something that's very controversial and people start talking about it and they hope that will translate ultimately into people's curiosity being stimulated and they come to see the movie whether or not they support it moving forward. Let's hope that won't be the response this time around. Also, I wanted to give you a heads up. We feature um, on our station, KPDQ, the Christian Outlook, and it's a compilation of hosts from all across the country. Talk show hosts like myself who uh, do interviews and cover the subjects of interest around the, uh, the country and impacting the culture. Well, this time around, we had the opportunity to break the story about the young female athletes, three of uh, them, who have courageously stood up to push back against a policy that would allow um, uh, biological males to compete with biological females when those males identify as transgender. They have a physiological advantage that is substantial, and it's having an impact on the future of uh, some of these young athletes who aspire to compete on uh, other levels. Uh, That interview is going to be featured uh, on the uh, Outlook this time around, so I would encourage you to check that out. You can go to ChristianOutlook.com and listen to those uh, interviews, or uh, you can uh, listen to it when it's broadcast here on KPDQ. But I would highly recommend the Christian Outlook. Again, a compilation of uh, interviews from all across the country on a variety of subjects. You can hear hosts from uh, other places, and that's uh, all on the Christian Outlook feature here on KPDQ. All right, coming up, we're going to um, land the plane. We'll tell you about a rather sad service that was held this week to bury the remains of um, more than 2,000 bodies that were found in the garage of a now-deceased abortionist. It's not at all clear why they were retained in his garage in plastic bags, uh, but there were notations on those bags that the uh, authorities have not revealed what the writing was about, maybe Uh, indicating um, to whom they belonged or the date or whatever the information there. But nonetheless, there was a solemn ceremony to lay them to rest this week. We'll tell you more about that and an update on Luis Palau. All of that coming up when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and it happens to be our final segment, which is brought to you by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, Christian Post has featured, um, you know, we say world-renowned evangelist Luis Palau, and he certainly is that, but he just feels like a family friend. He's part of our community. Uh, Anyway, he revealed that his cancer is now at bay. Doctors have given him months to live when he was diagnosed two years ago, and now he's ready to fully pass the mantle of ministry to his sons, who have done a remarkable job in these years leading up to this moment. At the top of 2018, the uh, uh, beloved minister made an unexpected announcement that he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Months later, in a Thanksgiving Day update, he testified that he was defying the odds and doing much better than doctors had anticipated. Two years have passed since that diagnosis, and he says his cancer is under control because of their care regimen. Well, in March of 2018, he shared that after two months of chemotherapy, the doctors were amazed at the results of his CT scan and blood work. All the tumors had shrunk by one-third, and there was no new growth of the uh, tumors. The results were so uncommon for someone of um, his age at stage four that he said the doctors were stunned. I'm not at all surprised. Um, Again, at the end of this uh, last year, one of the tumors actually shrank slightly, he wrote on his website. I'm actually feeling quite well, and the cancer seems to be... Uh, kept at bay with the current protocol, which he is continuing. Well, since then, the Palau Association has carried on with multiple initiatives and a new interview uh, with CBN. The minister said that it's time for him to step out of the way and let his sons and those that follow continue on the ministry freely. Uh, He said moving aside and allowing Andrew and Kevin Palau to take up the ministry mantle will be without relinquishing love and caring for my sons. Uh, you, uh, you've got to make room for the next generation to freely minister, freely do, he said. And although you think, okay, we're transitioned, Kevin is the president and Andrew is the better-known evangelist, uh, but are you still in the way? And I've uh, come to realize I am somewhat in the way. Palau also said his uh, two other sons, Keith and Stephen, and uh, he was filled with love and joy as he spoke of his children. Uh, I used to say when people uh, would ask me years ago, I'd say, I hope my boys will put on my burial tomb. Uh, My father wasn't perfect, but he shared the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, Although he continues to defy the odds, he said that he is ready to go to heaven whenever God sees fit. The only sad thing is leaving my wife and my kids and the team and a few of my best friends, he said, but really, I'm ready to go. I have the peace of the Lord. Well, the Palau Association has collaborated with thousands of churches in hundreds of cities around the world. It started really, the festival model at least, started here in Portland, you might recall. Uh, Luis Palau has led millions into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in over 75 nations. Uh, an autobiographical movie on his life um, was released, Palau the Movie, last year, and the film Journeys Through the Life of Luis. And if you have the, the opportunity to see it, I believe it's available for purchase now. It reveals how a bad-tempered young street preacher goes on to impact the world for Jesus, and it gives um, inspiration and hope to us all. So uh, encouraging to see Christian Post uh, give the update on Luis Palau, our brother from right here in this community. Well, the remains of 2,400 aborted babies were laid to rest in an Indiana cemetery on Wednesday after being discovered by the family of abortionist Ulrich George Klopfer, who died last September. We have identified a burial site with the purpose of memorializing these 2,400 unborn, keeping them together in rest, each of them connected by their common fate. Republican Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill at the graveside service in South Lawn Cemetery in South Bend. 
uh, said each of these 2,411 was a life, a life that was terminated, and each deserves to be secure and a final resting place with dignity and respect, as should be afforded all human beings. May each of the 2,411 buried here, now and forever, rest in peace, he added. Well, at the service that was streamed live by pro-life groups, including Susan B. Anthony List, clergy offered remarks decrying the evil of abortion and thanking God that the remains had a final resting place. Mario Sims, who's a senior pastor at Dulos Chapel in South Bend, urged Christians to continue to speak on behalf of of the unborn, saying, We are witnesses today of an American Holocaust. 2,411 children's lives were given by God, but snuffed out by the will of man. We, as followers of Jesus Christ, must stand strong. We must speak out. We must not be silenced. We must not be shouted down. We must not be told that we are politically incorrect. Well, these um, young lives were given the dignity that they had not been afforded by the abortionist who ended their lives. The head of the Right to Life of uh, Northeast uh, Indiana, Kathy Hamburger, told the Washington Post that she was so grateful that finally the bodies of these little boys and girls will be treated with the dignity they deserve. The abortionist, Mr. Klopfer, performed tens of thousands of abortions in Illinois and Indiana. The abortion clinics he operated in South Bend, Gary, and Fort Wayne are now closed. Authorities found these 200 I should say 2,246 abortion babies remains in the garage of the doctor's Illinois home on September 12th, 2019. At the time, the county sheriff said the remains recovered from the garage were found individually sealed in plastic bags and stored inside 70 cardboard boxes stacked from the floor to near reaching the height of the ceiling. Each bag was filled with a preservative. Uh, The bags were also labeled, but investigators didn't reveal what was written on the labels except to say the dates uh, indicate the babies were aborted uh, from 2000 to 2002. It's not at all clear why he kept those remains in his home. Um, The discovery of babies' remains inside his garage last September reminded many of the case of the Philadelphia abortionist Kermit Gosnell, whose story has since been retold in several documentaries and in motion picture by the same name. Uh, He's serving three life sentences without the possibility of parole at the Pennsylvania State Correctional Institution in Huntington uh, after being convicted of murdering three infants who were born alive during abortions and of involuntary manslaughter of one woman, um, a uh, Bhutanese refugee who died during an abortion. Now, interestingly, just yesterday there was a hearing regarding uh, infants born alive following an attempted abortion and whether or not they should be afforded the kind of uh, care Um, that pro-lifers, and I would certainly agree, uh, argue they are entitled to. All of that said, tomorrow, of course, is Friday. It also happens to be Valentine's Day. We're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news in that context. We'll also provide you with some of the headlines as they break throughout the day. So we'll make sure you have uh, everything you need. And we'll be featuring our interview of the week. So we'll let you know what that is tomorrow uh, if you join us as well. Um, again, that's coming up tomorrow, the lighter side of the news. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.